0: My investors know that I'm long only to me, actually a one way street. It's genuinely a vortex for the entire world's capital and all the money that exists out there. I think it is the greatest wealth redistribution that will happen in the modern era. Um, And I think in hindsight, we will look back on it as being obvious.
1: All right, everyone. So on Empire, you obviously know that we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto. And that is why we are super excited to share that we are hosting the Digital Asset Summit. We've hosted this since 2019. It's coming up in London, March 18th to 20th. Don't miss your chance to get ahead of the curve. You can get 20% off with code Empire20. We'll see you in London. This episode is brought to you by Toku. If you are planning to launch a token, already have a live token, are granting employees or contractors vesting token awards, or are just trying to figure out how to take care of taxable token events for your team, from easy-to-use token grant award templates through tracking vesting to managing tax withholdings, make it simple today with Toku. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. We have uh, Olaf Carlson Wee, founder of Polychain, employee at number one uh, from Coinbase back in, I think, 2012, 2011, 2013. Uh, Early 2013. 13, 13. That's right. Um, But Olaf, welcome back to the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, So I think uh, so. last time you were here was May 2022. Uh, the peg on UST had just broke, went from a dollar down to like 30 cents, went back up to, I think it was trading at around 68 cents at the time of recording. Luna had fallen from like 84 bucks down to two or three dollars. Um, and I asked you this question, which was uh, you've been through many market cycles, right? Saw the crash of 2011, 2014, 2018, and now we can say 2022. I would love to just ask the same question that I asked you back then, which was like, what is your framing for how you view the markets today?
0: Um, you know, crypto is most of the time in a bear market, like when you just think about uh, the amount of time you spend in the market, it tends to go up very, very quickly, um, and then sort of bleed out over the course of several years. This, you know, cycle, so to speak, has played out several times. Um, you know, I just think it's, it's patience. Um, you know, I think crypto is, in a sense, Um, a relatively easy category to invest in, in, in that you just can sort of buy and hold. um, And there's very little counterparty risk if you do it right, because your only real counterparty risk is sort of a protocol, you don't have to manage um, too much exposure to lots of third parties that are holding assets or executing trades or things like that. Um, But at the same time, it's easy for market participants to get really distracted. um, And sort of short term Oriented, um, in general, people who have just had a long-term view in crypto, I think, have done the best um, relative to people who have tried to move really quickly and, you know, get you know get where they're trying to go in six months instead of over the course of, say, five years. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think it's that different. I'm just I've always been very long-term oriented. This is a big project. If we're going to replace um, the global financial system with software that nobody controls, it's going to take a while, um, but not that long. Like it's come a very, very long way, um, yeah. over the last 10 years.
1: Yeah. How are you, like, how do you think about pos- like, I guess just positioning, um, as it relates to, I guess, both private and public investing. When you think about, when you see what's happening in the market today, maybe it feels like the markets, you know, maybe we're entering a new cycle, bull market is maybe kicking off either now or soon. How do you think about just positioning the fund?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, this, these are questions about like market cycles, but th- the reality is market cycles are a reflection of things that are happening, you know, uh, underneath, right? It's hmm. prices are a reflection of um, the reality that's happening underneath. So, you know, I don't think it's, does it justice to think just in terms of like market cycles, right? So the the reason that um, we are where we are today is because people built things that actually mattered. It's not like Bitcoin has just swung up and down randomly. Um, you know, you have the launch of, of Coinbase in, in 2012. You have the launch of Ethereum um, in 2015. Um, you have the launch of a lot of the infrastructure around, you know, DeFi and NFTs in 2018-19. Um, you know, these, in these bear markets, like real things get built that lead to market cycles. It's not, um, so I, you know, I think that paying too much attention to prices is Mm. like, you're kind of by definition, um, following, um, you know, other people who are paying attention to what's happening underneath. Um, and that's, you know, these real things that (laughs) result in markets moving. Um, so I, you know, I think it's, there's a lot of chatter in crypto about like market cycles and prices. Um, I think it's all misguided. Like if everybody could just um, start paying attention to, you know, real questions like what's the best way to scale um, applications that are embedded inside blockchains? That's a very complex question. And the answer um, to it will give you insights about um, the way the market's going to move or how to invest. Um, If you're sitting there just on Twitter, chattering about prices, you know, like you're not going to beat the market. Um, you're probably going to lose to even just like market beta, um, because you're yeah. just distracting yourself, and you're really misunderstanding fundamentally like why prices move. Prices are not random; they're reflection of things that are reflection of basically market participants having insights of one type or another. Yeah. Um. So you know, I I don't spend most of my time. On, so to speak, the markets, I spend most of my time, um, looking at, um, businesses and technologies being built and how those things are going, hmm. uh, that then informs my view on, on markets, hmm. um, and, and what to buy, what to sell, how to think about it. So, um, you know, I, I just think if you spend your time on this kind of qualitative reality that underlies prices, um, you're going to have a much better time.
1: Yeah. Maybe we can go into some of those topics, but the you brought up the you brought up this idea of like the best things get built in the bear markets. You brought that up on the last podcast. We had you know Coinbase. We've had uh, Coinbase in what 2015 bear market, 2016 um, OpenSea, and like 2018. Uh, you know Uniswap. Maybe you could add that to 2019 as well. What what do you think got built in this past bear market that that really excites you? Um. So the entire suite of
0: um, layer two, so-called, um, you know, it's it's yeah. that's a complicated bucket, but um, I would call it layer layer two technologies, um, zero knowledge uh, cryptography based technologies. That's both for scaling and privacy. Um, um, so, you know, projects like Celestia, um, projects like Arbitrum. C- Celestia is a data availability layer, so also sort of a scaling project. Just got just got off with Nick an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, um, yeah. And then EigenLayer. Um, you know, is still in um, you know, it's not, it's not uh fully live at full scale, but I think Eigenlayer is in, in the process of getting there. Um, so a lot of these are kind of these core infrastructure yeah. uh, pieces that, you know, are the result of years and years of fundamental research in cryptography, distributed systems, peer-to-peer networks, and how to best scale these things. Um, I do think it's easy to forget that. Um, when you're not a crypto native and you're sort of a, you know, kind of, uh, tinkering or just kind of testing out one of these apps, they're still pretty, um, horrendously, uh, difficult to use. Um, and there's a lot of hoops to jump through. And so I think that simplifying the user experience around these, um, is going, you know, it requires like real improvements to these technologies. Yeah. Um, the only, you know, the other one that comes to mind is, um, I would call it the next generation of these um, social finance experiments. So things like um, Frentech and Tomo um, that are, you know, adding a um, financial incentive layer to, um, you know, the person to person interaction that already exists in like these social media applications. Hmm. Um, and I think that has huge potential. Um, there's, we, we've kind of gotten this, um, attempts at this in small ways, um, like through steam it way back in 2015, um, bit in 2021. Um, and now this generation. And I think there's really something there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of like axie infinity, right? It, it ultimately, um, collapsed, but there's obviously something there, right. It, it, to get as, as big as it did. Um, so this is another category where, I'm just waiting for the right team um, to have the right execution. And I think something is very big there um, from a consumer perspective. Um, but those are the things top of mind for me that have launched over the course of the last year or so.
1: Yeah. It, I, maybe we can just go deeper into L2s then and just where um, just like these. I was. It's funny. We had a new employee start the other day and I was explaining the. The first generation of the Ethereum killers, like the the original ICOs, basically um, back in 2017, kind of that wave. Um, but I think so. It's funny. So so Blur launched Blast yesterday, and I think the general reaction was uh, everyone's really sick of all these L2s launching, right? Exchanges are now launching L2s. There's all these L2s, but I think people are quick to forget that. I mean, this this kind of wave of L2s has only really been around for I'd call it maybe two years. You could say. I think Uniswap launched on Optimism and Arbitrum and summer of 2021, if I remember correctly. So it's really been only around for two years. What is your just like general framework for how you're viewing like L2s relative to uh, maybe the app chain thesis, which I thought was going to happen on Cosmos, but it looks like it's also happening on maybe the L2s as well versus you know other ecosystems like Celestian and, and you know what they're doing with the, the DA layer relative to maybe what Solana is doing. What is your like framework for, I guess you could call this big bucket, like the modular versus monolithic debate?
0: yeah um so you know we could spend an hour just on this. <laughs> yeah, how much of that to um, you have? <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly i i think to summarize um in general i think a um kind of modularized stack um makes more sense to me for hmm. peer-to-peer networks and and things that are trustless Um, It also just makes more sense to me from like an engineering perspective. Um, It's like, let's not depend on one system. Let's build lots of different systems that are interchangeable and can be optimized um, in each of their relative components um, rather than depending on a single system. Um, The only real downside I see to that is um, interoperability across applications and it's, you know, I don't mean to um, downplay the, the downside, right? That's that's a big deal. Um, and one of the core um, value propositions of, you know, web-based applications and also blockchain-based applications is that they're all freely interoperable. Um, so I think that's kind of the, um, the big question is um, there's a certain simplicity to a monolithic architecture. Um, it's just kind of like easier to reason about mentally. Um, Ultimately, though, I don't think it it works quite as well um, for long term scale, um, and I think it presents a bit more like risk to um, to the system. I mean, if we're going to build again, like the global financial system um, on the internet, I you know I broadly struggle to see that existing kind of on one
1: um, one piece of tech or like one network. I get I get the risk side of that but what what's the um like why doesn't it scale because wouldn't the argument be that it's actually easy maybe easier to scale on something like Solana um so peer
0: to peer systems um you know if if you're going to have a a resilient decentralized system where you assume that sophisticated well financed attackers have real motivation um to take down the system or halt the system in some capacity um, if you're designing with that framework in mind which i think is the only way to design if you're building the global financial system obviously right you you can't assume everybody's nice and it's all kumbaya um you need mutually untrusting parties to be able to operate on the same um substrate um i i think that you know scaling a system, i mean this We're getting into, like, a a debate that is more properly explained um, very technically, right? Um, But at a high level, I think that um, it's very hard to scale a peer-to-peer system with billions of users um, in one kind of monolithic architecture. It makes more sense conceptually to me to break it up into different um, pieces that all sort of settle back later, in a sense. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's broadly where I stand on it. Um, I do think it's, um, I'm happy that, um, we have the burbling chaos in crypto of every experiment being run simultaneously. Um, it's the number one way to ensure that the entire thing works, um, long-term. And I don't, you know, I obviously, I have to invest and and place bets on the way I think this future will play out. Um, but broad brushstrokes, um, you know, I care about the entire thing thing succeeding, like the entire project of crypto. And um, I'm glad that every single experiment is being run simultaneously.
1: Yeah. If I remember, did uh, did you guys co-lead the seed in DYDX several years ago? I think five yes. years ago. So what, I'm be very curious to just to hear what you think about like the app chain thesis, DYDX moving from, um, what were they building on Starkware? <clears throat> uh, I'm just curious how you think about like apps as they hit scale, moving on to like their own sovereign chains.
0: Yeah. So, um, one of the original um, complaints about the Ethereum architecture is that every single application has to compete in one fee market, right? right? Um, and what that means is that um, the transactions or, or software executions that have the highest P L and um, for the end user end up getting bidded to the top of the kind of block auction. Um, so, it means that things... Um like large derivatives trades, you know end up taking up block space um away from you know trading um dog playing cards or something like that right um where the end user is not expecting p and l maybe at all um so i I think that um that argument you know like has real merit to it, right like um every time we see for example, a big NFT mint or a big ICO or something like that, you have market participants um, bidding up um, block space, you know, for that time period and regular users sometimes can't get um, their just normal transactions to execute in a timely way. Um, So I think that app chains allow um, a specific application to sort of escape that um, fee auction and block auction. And so they're, they're sacrificing some level of interoperability in exchange for a more predictable consumer experience for their users. Um, and so I think it's, it's just a trade-off. I don't think there's um, a right way or a wrong way. Um, but I think for an application like DYDX, um, execution matters a lot, right? Mm-hmm. You can't have derivatives trades failing because there's an ICO or something. Yeah, um, some big so board ape mint or something like that, crush, crushing your trades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I think that in a case like DYDX, um, it, it's quite logical to me that the users value um, predictability and stability more than interrupt. Um, yeah. um, that's probably not the case for other types of apps. So the, you know, this is why like these questions about the best way to scale or different architectures—they're very nuanced and it's. Um, it's not one size fits all. I don't think there's like a silver bullet and I don't think, um, one way is best for every different type of application developer or user. Yeah. Um, so I'm just glad every experiment's being run simultaneously. We have an open market. Um, and eventually that market
1: will figure it all out. Yeah. Yeah. It almost does feel like, uh, if you are a founder in crypto, you are basically building from a, uh, ecosystem first perspective, then figuring out the app occasionally so you're like maybe i want to build on 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 ethereum or i'm a solana developer and then you f- figure out the app um as opposed to traditional systems which would say no, nobody says hey i'm i'm building on aws let me then figure out the app you say look here's my here's my you know wireframes here's my figma um here's what i'm trying to build what's best for me where sh- where you know where should i go build this i um, mean it does feel like it's kind of flipped sometimes. You, you think like- developers. Um- Make those
0: decisions based on something other than the best user experience because I I think developers one hundred percent I think now for the build, first I think they're agnostic and they build mm. for the best user experience
1: one hundred percent. Um, uh, I would say yes, except for the fact that the u- the user aggregation layer uh, historically has been in crypto. It's been at the L one layer. So whereas in traditional systems, that's not how it should actually work. It's like AWS doesn't have the user hasn't aggregated all the users. So you don't go build on AWS for the users in crypto. That's how it's worked. So you will actually go build. I I think that you will build on something that is a worse user experience because they have the distribution. Um, but that's a flawed system.
0: Yeah. Um, I don't know if the, I would call that flawed. That's how just so many different things work. Um, You know, it's, it's, we have so many different kind of legacy, um, ways that there's distribution, um, you know, just like roads versus railways or something like that. Right. And, um, you're always kind of trapped in, um, that those legacy distribution systems, um, you know, people, it takes a long time to shift tech standards. Um, Mm. you know, like people are going to always build on, um, the best sort of distribution, you know, you know, it, like getting distribution matters so much more than an elegant piece of technology,
1: right? How do you guys, I mean, you. how many portfolio
0: companies do you guys have? Um, probably, uh, you know,
1: total investments we've ever made, probably around 200. Around 200. So how do you think about it? Like if someone came to you today where, um, and they want to build in DeFi, they want to build a new, I don't know, purpose market or something like that. Like, are you, should they go build their own? Sovereign chain on cosmos should they do it on Celestia should they go build on l two if it's on l two where should it be should they you know should it be on solana like how how do you direct that guidance
0: um well it it depends on what their goals are yeah. <clears throat> you know and broadly it's just um you know what what's going to allow you to get the most users uh the fastest and build a good product that's offering value to users yeah. um, you know so i I often think that um entrepreneurs and developers might have um a better sense of that than even i do mm. right um but broadly like i you know we're very agnostic i just i don't have a strong opinion other than like if you're building a consumer product you need to just go yeah. get users and your go to market um approach matters a lot more than um you know a very elegant castle in the sky piece of software that nobody can use
1: yeah, agreed. And it does seem like a lot of this is starting to get abstracted away. I had coffee this morning with um, this company, Privy. The founder of Privy, um, they were the like embedded wallets inside of tech and it seems like a lot of that is uh, the infrastructure is actually getting getting fixed there, or just getting not fixed, but getting improved upon. What about um just one more question on this, Olaf? Is uh like how much weight do you place on I guess what I'd call narrative simplicity, which I would describe as like if you're a developer coming into Ethereum, you can choose Arbitrum, you can choose Optimism, ZK Sync, and so many others, as opposed to like, look, that's confusing. Let me just go build on Solana because it's the or or Avalanche or whatever, you know, what this the simpler option. How much weight do you put on that?
0: Um Well, I mean, you know, I, I think I don't know if that is if it is simpler. Um <laughs> like yeah. um you might think it is, but I, you know, I, I, um, (laughs) I like, again, it's like build where you think you can acquire users the fastest, right? Like I, this is, is complicated questions. You have to make a, a bet, um, on where, um, users will go. You have platform risk, um, as an, as a, um, developer, right? I mean, this is is not that unique to crypto um just across everything like if you're going to build um let's say on a social media network it's like do you build on instagram or do you build on tiktok um and you do have to on some level have a prediction about where those platforms are going to be 5 years from now um you know in the early days of the internet it was the decision to build on the internet instead of advertising in catalogs or something right like there is platform risk um as an entrepreneur, um, there's jurisdictional risk, right? If you're going to start a, con- uh, a company um, in America, um, you probably should have some level of view about where that country is going to be in five or ten years, right? Um, so, you know, this this never ends. Like, yeah. as an entrepreneur, you're making a bunch of layered directional bets um, that you should have some view on. Yeah, um, I, I just. I have views on these things, but the reality is um for me, you know, it it it's clear because we're asking these questions that nobody has um a definitive answer right now. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't look at a crystal ball and know exactly how this is gonna play out. I kind of have a probability weighted view is the way
1: mm. to put it. Mm. What about um maybe switching gears a little? What about leverage? So if you think about the last cycle, I think um you could probably categorize this as like the, the cycle, the, the leverage driven cycle, whether it's block five, Genesis, Celsius. Um, I mean the, the kind of list goes on and that was, I think actually great at the beginning. I mean, it kickstarted a lot of things, um, but obviously ended up in, in flames. What, how do you think leverage evolves in the next cycle? Um, you know, I,
0: I think there's a lot of interaction, um, between leverage and sort of like larger financial markets and like, um, interest rates, um, for example. So the fact that during COVID interest rates basically were at zero, um, there was a lot of capital available. I think that leads to, you know, at a macro level, more leverage. Um, I think if interest rates, you know, go up, you probably see less leverage. Um, if interest rates go down, you see more. Um, I know it's a very basic observation, but I do, I think it, is a big part of what led to a lot of leverage in the previous cycle. Um, You know, and I, I think in general, uh, crypto is a very reflexive asset. So what I mean by that is demand often goes up as price goes up, which is sort of against um, like microeconomics 101, right? Um, Where if prices go up, you assume demand goes down Um, here. Demand in a sense goes up because the price going up sort of is the project um, so as Bitcoin becomes more and more valuable, um, the probability of it um, succeeding as sort of an electronic gold or non sovereign store of value is going up and up and up yeah um, so you're you, you know you're in this interesting position where um, one thing I've said in the past is that the the risk reward of you know, buying Bitcoin is sort of equivalent at every price, um, because the 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 price going up sort of is the project of of becoming
1: like this store value system. Yeah. What about um, another form of leverage, which is restaking? Would be you mentioned EigenLayer? I'd be just be curious to get your general views on on restaking in the next cycle and like the way that I've been kind of thinking about it is it's it's almost maybe the new this cycles form of leverage within ethereum right it's more claims on the on the same existing eth but be curious if you think that's a the right framework to be looking at this or just in general how you view re- restaking
0: yeah i mean i think it, one interesting thing is we're going to see um, very high kind of velocity of money in these systems um because you can rehypothecate the same unit of money um to secure many, many different applications, pieces of middleware and things like that. Mm. Um, so I do think that with this restaking, you're going to see on assets like like ETH that can do that restaking, uh, potentially see um, you know very good yield, right? Where if you're securing um, many, many different pieces of middleware, um, including the main Ethereum chain, and you're getting paid uh, to do it in each one of them, um, you know, I, I think a big part of unlocking that is going to be um, slashing. And, you know, one tricky thing about proof of stake networks is the, the vast majority of the time when people are slashed, it's because of it like an administrative or operational mistake, right? It's not actually because they were trying to attack the system. Yeah, they're
1: not a malicious actor. It's a, some, yes. Yeah. And
0: of course, the protocol cannot tell intentionality. And so it can't really tell if you're like malicious or you just misconfigured your node. Um, I think solving that problem um, is going to be a very big part of how we can get um, this sort of restaking ecosystem to to be very big. Because if you can sort of solve that problem, um, you know, through an insurance product or something else, there's, there's lots of different approaches. Um, you know, it, it just means you can have your node, you could have it sort of like auto restake right? And so you're just like, I'll sign up for every single piece of middleware that people can come up with. Um, if that's the case, and I suspect that there's lots of different types of applications that could use the security um, afforded by an Ethereum-like system, um, I think you could see ETH become like a supercharged asset, right? Hmm. Very, um, I know that's a, sort of a dumb way of putting it, but what I mean is getting yield from lots and lots of different places all at once. Um,
1: because and, all these other blockchains will want to rent the most, one of the most valuable things in crypto, which becomes ETH security. So ETH starts exporting security to other like DApps and blockchains and stuff like that, and ETH just becomes this. What do you call it? Supercharged asset because of is because of that. Is that the right thesis? Yeah,
0: basically. I mean, every type of uh, middleware um, that needs the security afforded by this this massive system um just pays those restaking nodes for it. Mm. Um so you, you also get a I think a more precise marketplace for how to value that um security. Um you know, today I don't think these things are priced in a super efficient way. Yeah. in part because nobody really knows what they're worth.
1: Yeah. Do you, will we do you think we'll see more and more I guess if you extend that out enough like more and more L1s like I saw Cello which used to be an L one is now becoming an L two, um, like being a little more ether-lined. Um Will we see? Will that trend continue? Do you think? Yes. Hmm. Why? Yeah, I mean, I
0: I think that it's become very clear bootstrapping your own um, blockchain system, um, getting distribution to users nodes. Um, having the, an asset that's that's liquid, having a stable system that people can build on, um, having developers take that sort of platform risk on your system—it's all really, really hard. Um, and so I, I think that it's it's become clear, um, you know, launching your own blockchain is a very difficult proposition. Yeah. Um, whereas you know, plugging into an existing um, system uh you know obviously much easier. So I, I think we will likely see that migration continue. I also think that um future launches will be much more likely to be just say um a layer two system or or on a layer two system um hmm. like an existing one like Arbitrum instead of um trying to build their own sovereign uh trust network.
1: Yeah. Uh, this is a totally out of left field question, like switching gears a little bit. But how how excited are you about Bitcoin still? Oh, very. I mean,
0: I think Bitcoin has carved out um, a very clear value proposition, yeah. um, which is, you know, not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think there's um, no, but I'm serious. I think there's real value to that. Um, you know, go- governance, yeah. um, quote, you know, you can. Really view as a as a security vulnerability, right? Um, and that system being able to change at all in any capacity, um, you could view as a security risk, which I think is is appropriate. Um, so in in the context of Bitcoin, you know, just the assurance that it is what it is, um, I think is is the right way for it to be positioned in the market.
1: Yeah. Do you think something like, or I don't know, have you been paying attention to ordinals and the resurgence of ordinals and fees on Bitcoin? Have you been following this? Yeah. I I think that, you know, building all this stuff on top of Bitcoin makes
0: no sense to me. Okay.
1: That's, (laughs) yeah, it feels foolish to me. It feels like uh, try to be, you've got the best product market fit in all of crypto right now, arguably outside of maybe that or stable coins and stop trying to be something that you're not.
0: Yeah. I mean, nobody controls Bitcoin. Yeah, like no, I think course. it's just important of there's no there's no
1: CEO making yeah, the I, I just think it's
0: build. important to point out that this is just a absolutely chaotic permissionless market where anyone can do anything anywhere. Yeah. Um so it's it's you know, it's hard to say don't, you know, don't change the Bitcoin narrative or something like nobody controls that. Um but I, I do think just from an entrepreneur perspective, it's it's like why try to build on this platform, um, you know, apps that already have, were built and exist on other systems um, and have for years, it's, it's like, it doesn't make any sense to me.
1: All right, everyone. So we talk a lot about the institutions coming into crypto on Empire. Santi and I are both headed out to London, March 18th to 20th for Blockworks's eighth ever digital asset summit das this is an institutional buttoned up conference that we've hosted since 2019 i like to joke that it is probably the last remaining kind of suit and tie event in crypto people are still wearing suit and tie it's pretty funny but you'll actually hear from a lot of the largest institutions in the world coming from standard charter, FIS, JP Morgan, framework folks coming out, Wintermute, Van Eck, Goldman Sachs. There are a couple big themes of this conference. One Bitcoin catalyst, the having and the spot ETF. Two, a view from the buy side. Three, RWA's tokenization and stable coins. Four Global regulatory frameworks, five, institutional infrastructure, including banking and payments, and six, the macro case for crypto. If you have anything to do with the institutional side of crypto, you have to be there. Santi and I got your back. We hooked you up with a 20% off code. It is Empire20. There is a little competition running internally at Blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets. So help Santi and I out. Register with our code and you get 20% off. That is Empire20. This episode is brought to you by Toku. Toku makes implementing global token compensation and incentive awards simple. With Toku, you get unmatched tax and legal support to grant and administer your global team's tokens. From easy-to-use token grant award templates through token vesting to managing tax withholdings, Toku understands every grant structure, token purchase agreements, restricted token awards, restricted token units, token options, token appreciation rights, and even phantom tokens. For legal, finance, and HR teams, it is a huge, complex task to have to comply with global regulations around compensating people with tokens, not to mention the payroll, tax obligations, tax reporting in every country that you employ someone. It is difficult, time-consuming, manual, and costly, and it is drawing more and more attention from regulators and governments. Toku makes this simple for leading teams across the space, protocol labs, DY x Foundation, minna Foundation, Hedera, Gnosis, Safe, Gitcoin, and a lot more. Reach out to Toku at Toku.com forward slash empire or click the link in the description. When did you get like, I guess quotes around, like get into crypto, Olaf? You said 2012? In the 2011. 2011 What What do you think of um in terms of like if you had to categorize the first 10 years of being in crypto versus the maybe the next 12 uh the next 10 years, like what do you think are the kind of key differences between what the industry used to look like versus what it will look like?
0: Um, I mean, I think the first one is that, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't an industry. It was just an open source software project. Um, You know, and I, I think it was in just total obscurity, like real obscurity until 2017. Um, And even then it was like quite niche um i think 2021 was the first moment where we saw like a glimmer of you know real mainstream awareness of this whole thing um you know the the next um 10 years are going to be defined more by um institutional um acceptance and adoption and um what that looks like um and i think that just means how different geographies react to this um it means How companies like, say, Coinbase um, scale and how they, you know, grow internationally or work with regulators, um, it's building just a lot more in public, right? People are paying attention. A lot more people uh, care about this. Um, But I I mostly think that the first, you know, set part of this project was a bit ideological, like most uh, market participants joined for ideological reasons or like they were you know, interested in the tech or, or something. Um, I think the next wave of users are just pragmatists,
1: right? Like they don't care. Not coming in for the ideology. Um,
0: Yeah. They they're here for, to accomplish a very clear goal. And this thing is a tool for them. It's not like an end in itself. Um, So I I think that it is very
1: high level is probably the biggest shift. Yeah. What uh, what do you think some of those products, uh, products will be, I mean, the argument I think is like the first 10 years people came in for this like ideological, it was an ideological user base. Maybe you were a libertarian, maybe you were, you know, down with the banks, whatever it may be. Um, but now the next 10 years, you'll have these pragmatists who are coming in who are, have no interest in the ideology. They just want good products. What, what do you, I guess from a product perspective, like what, what, what gets you excited there?
0: Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, this is a pretty common opinion, but I, I, I think it is my opinion overall. It's probably um social media systems that have a financial incentive layer
1: like like a um, like a front tech essentially
0: yeah, like it, you know I, I like I mentioned, there have been multiple attempts in this category, you know, Steam it, bitcloud friendtech what what I've seen is that there is a spark there, right? I've seen lots of regular non crypto users sign up to these apps, and there is something there mm. for real. Um I think getting the form factor right um you know it's not clear that we have gotten it right um but something there I think is possible um to get to global scale, like billion plus users um the second category you know is is also is is gaming basically um and it's very similar right It's adding a financial incentive layer um to the already existing application logic in a video game. Mm. Um, so it's, it's not like reinventing per se video games or social media. It's just adding a financial incentive layer, mm. um, to a
1: lot of the user behaviors that already exist there. So for SocialFi, you get less excited about this idea of like, you know, you can't get canceled or you can't get, um, you can own your own data. You get less excited about that. More excited about look, they're, uh, uh, like in, basically embedding financial markets into, into social platforms. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The average user doesn't care about censorship. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think that's always been it. a
1: foolish value. But, like the average things. user yeah.
0: that says, oh, wow, like, you know, I have um, a small influencer following on some XYZ platform. And if I sign up to this new one, there's like $80 waiting for me or something. Yeah. Right. Like that, the ability to,
1: I mean, how many of your, I don't know if you do this, but I have friends who will, uh, or I, or I'll do this either. It's like, I do it with music and I'll do it with accounts where it's like, Oh, I found that song early. Like I found Fred again early on or something. Or, um, so the ability to bet there or the ability to say like, Hey, there's this big Instagram account. They have 500,000 followers. And I'm like, Oh, I found them when they had 2000 followers. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. The ability to turn, um, all of these mechanisms into markets is it's very clear how that's could be compelling to your average user. Um, they like, imagine if you could get paid for being the best TikTok scroller, right? Like the number of people that are already competing in that without getting paid is, you know, in the hundreds of millions and billions. Yeah. Um, so it, you know, if we can add markets to things like curation of content, um, like like I said, you know, we already have massive massive scale content curation systems out here um and it's just adding a financial incentive layer to a lot of these behaviors that already exist um and I think that adding that financial incentive layer can also like extend the sophistication um of these systems um and also lead to kind of new behaviors that may be um mm are a level of work people were unwilling to do voluntarily. Um,
1: yeah. It reminds me of this tweet that you sent. I don't, know, I forget when it was a while ago. It was like over time, the the lines will blur between playing a crypto embedded video game and working a job.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's um, in a sense um, like you and I already work for Bitcoin Um And I, I think that, you know, this just gets extended more and more and more where you can embed, um, if you can basically align a sort of work or output with a financial reward in, in a, you know, in a protocol, um, you basically get a bunch of people working for that protocol. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think that the people that, um, are, are playing around in, In video games where they're getting rewarded for playing the game Um, like sometimes that sort of quote useless and what i mean is that the video game isn't doing anything per se it's it's like an end in itself um but i think there's other mechanisms where you can make the behavior a means to an end so for example um labeling to train a machine learning algorithm um where you think you're playing like this little Picture game, but you're really actually like contributing to a labeling system for a machine learning system. Like or, you know, I'm just that's just off the top of my head, but it's it's where you have a gamified, financialized like experience that actually is is work for somebody or something. Yeah,
1: yeah, no different than than captcha's right? So yeah, you guys have been doing a ton of research and uh, and work and and investing in the in privacy, but like the best part about Front Tech and the worst part was that you could see everyone who was buying and uh, you know also on the flip side selling your shares right so i remember i was having dinner with uh, dinner with someone who i thought was a buddy and he sold my shares the uh, you know like 2 hours before the dinner and that should be i'm kind of, i'm half joking about that but also i remember being like oh man he's selling my shares and i'm 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 curious how you think about just like okay, there'll be, uh, financial markets for all, not just in financial markets, how we historically think of them, but in social markets and things like that, how do you think about like privacy and would love to just hear like the work that you guys have been doing in the privacy space?
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I think that, um, you know, privacy by default is obviously to me, um, very important, mm. you know, for everything. Um, and I think the ability to opt out of it um, and sort of reveal um is is can be very important in in certain circumstances as well. Um but broadly, like for this to go mainstream um in a big way, we need privacy, right? We need businesses to be able to have um bank accounts that aren't public balances or spending um that isn't public or, you know, the ability to sell your friend's friend tech key or something um, privately. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think privacy is is going to be critical here for um, long-term success. Um, I think that as was revealed with the growth of the internet, on average, people don't care about it that yeah. much. Um, you know, by default, we don't have very good privacy on the internet um, in sort of non-crypto apps. Yeah. Um, I think we have an opportunity to kind of fix that with crypto, but, you know, so far it's clear that it's playing out the same way. People on average don't care that much. Um, but I think that, you know, getting to global scale, it's, it's a very important component. of this.
1: All right. So we talked social fi leverage restaking. I guess those are like, those almost feel semi obvious to me in the next one to two years that like they'll continue. What are some things that you're uh, I guess when I think of you and like Polychain, I've always thought of you as being someone who's good at thinking on the margins of society. Um, mm-hmm. I'd just be curious, like crypto or non-crypto, like what are some things that you're paying attention to on the margin and like on the fringes that maybe are starting to seem obvious to you that don't seem obvious to other people yet? Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, I'm I'm very excited about um, like... Wearables um, that can, so there's a surgical approach to um, like a Neuralink
1: type surgical approach. Which is going into FDA trials, I think, right, this week?
0: Yep. um, With sort of embedding um, computer augmented capacity to the human brain directly, right? Um, There's a different approach, which is using wearables. So it's non-surgical. And usually this category Um, is based on a kind of new research um, that's called focused ultrasound. Um, I think that's a very big deal because if you can get that to work, um, it means that um, developers could program um, brain states, basically. Like you'd have the ability to programmably say, um, I want to be alert or I want to be sleepy or I want to be relaxed or I want to be whatever, right? Um, if, If we can build that thing, People are going to put that on and they're never going to take it off. It's like bigger than mobile phones to me. If what is the, this? Foc- focused um, ultrasound? It's it's a wearable version of um, something that can use. Focus ultrasound, which it basically stimulates, um, you know, in a research setting with cubic millimeter accuracy, uh, specific parts of the brain. Mm. Um, so it's related to transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, which is what we've kind of used today um, to activate different parts of the brain um, using an external device. It's it's substantially um, better at targeting a certain area um, than trans- than traditional transcranial magnetic stimulation. Um, and so it's still kind of in the research phase. Um, it's you know this is pretty far from being like commercially available in in a consumer product. Um, but if it does work, um, it's a very big deal because you're going to be able to put this thing on, um, and basically program, um, whatever type of brain state you want to be in. Like if you want to be sleepy, you want to be relaxed. You want to be alert. I imagine
1: it also be, I mean, uh, I know nothing about this. I'm hearing about it for the first time, but I'll look into it, but I imagine it would be not just helpful for your states that you're in, but also, I mean, if you can target that deep. That 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 specific of an area layers deep into the brain, you can probably start to remove some some bad stuff, whether it's like a tumor or something something like that. Um, yeah, I I don't I don't
0: yeah, it it doesn't quite work like that. It's it's more like it's just stimulating Mm -hmm. um a very specific region of the brain. Um but it's um, you know, I'm very excited too about surgical approaches. The problem is like the go to market with the surgical approach is obviously tricky from multiple angles. There's a regulatory issue. There's just like a consumer um, trust issue. It's going to take a really long time to get everyone feeling comfortable with like surgical brain implants. Um, Especially this feeling (laughs) that, wait, I got like version one. Um, Should I have waited for version two or things like that? You know, I think just the surgical approach, I'm very excited about it, but it seems tricky to go mainstream with that um, quickly, um, this wearable approach, if it works, um, it's a really, you know, it seems pretty easy. Um, and the, the other thing that's nice about it is if like, you don't like the way it makes you feel or something, or it gets hacked or something, you can just take yeah. it off. So there's no like, um, surgical implant that's like just sort kind of in there. Um, so I'm excited about that, um, when it comes to wearables, um, I think that yeah. If I was going to say one category, I think it, people aren't looking at very much. It would be what this. about inside of crypto? Um, inside of crypto, you know, um, I'm you know, I think there's a lot of awareness around EigenLayer, um, but I think that it is um, still under hyped, sort of, <laughs> for how big a deal it is um, because it just it it allows you to take this security afforded by Ethereum that we pay billions and billions of dollars for every year in the form of um, minor rewards or validator rewards. Um, And it allows you to apply that security to arbitrary application logic, right? Um, So I I think that's a really big deal. And I think we're going to see a lot of things launch that wouldn't have, um, if not for um, Eigenlayer.
1: Um, like, like like what, Olaf? Or like um, what like what does that unlock that we couldn't do before? I mean, any any. So th- this is
0: what makes it a big deal, is that it's very hard to imagine all the ways it will get used. Um, yeah. you know, like the fact that um in the past to get that level of trust you had to launch a crypto asset, um, with the kind of peer to peer network attached to it and get the asset to have value um and liquidity um and get developers to sort of build on top of your platform um it's it just it's it's very tricky right to to execute and get right um the ability to sort of take away all that and just plug into eigenlayer and say oh all of a sudden my application has um you know nation state level um security right like it's got protection from um any sort of attacker, or hacker um it's hard to imagine all the different types of apps that either exist today and would move to an eigenlayer like system or will be uniquely enabled um by this you know existing you know a a simple example is like an oracle system you know feeding a price into that's not endogenous to a blockchain into a blockchain is actually really really hard um it's, it's sort of an equivalent problem of feeding a valid block into a blockchain, right? Where sort of by definition, um, you know, there's a huge financial incentive to feed in bad data. Um, and you have this, the, you know, the whole system is basically designed to validate um, the legitimacy of this one piece of data that's like not inside the system and add it to the system. Um, so it's really, really hard to build. With Eigenlayer, it's very easy to build, right? Um, yeah. Something like an Oracle system.
1: Hmm. Maybe we can come back to this idea, uh, that we started with about, about cycles as we like think about wrapping this up. So I listened back to this episode that we did back in May, 2022. And you said this line, you said now begins the era of buying, not selling. And I think that was a a pretty good call. Um, maybe I'd ask the the inverse of that, which is like, how do you think about selling, not buying? And like when, when to start thinking about that?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't sell like i think that this is a one way street um to be honest like it, i know that it sounds um maybe ludicrous to people but i really think that um crypto assets will outlive um you know fiat money in the long term so i to me it's um it's like a one way street the goal is not to um you know go from dollars into Bitcoin back to dollars. It's like just to convert um, into crypto.
1: So I get that. I actually agree with you. I had this debate with Santiago who couldn't make it today um, on the last like Roundup podcast that we did, but I I don't sell. Like I don't sell my Bitcoin. I don't sell my ETH. I'm not like trying to like trade in and out to stack more sats. Like I don't do that. And he was arguing that you should have a price target on everything. The counter, so I actually really agree with you the counter I might have, though, is like you have LPs that you have to report to. So price of ETH hits $20,000 in this cycle. Like, do you think about taking any money off the top to like, because you have to send a quarterly investor report or something mm-hmm. to Polychain, uh, you know, LPs or, or, or no? My investors know that I'm long only.
0: Well, so I, you know, I, um, it, it's, it's to me actually a one way street. It's genuinely a vortex for the entire world's capital and all the money that exists out there. Um, I think it is the greatest wealth redistribution that will happen in the modern era. Um, And I think in hindsight, we will look back on it as being obvious. Um, But we're in it right now, and it can be quite confusing. Um, Even though, you know, so far, when I look at the um, validation Right, um, it you know we've seen just this incredible growth. It's sort of inarguably been um, the best investment category of the of the last decade, um, and I have very little reason to believe anything has changed. Like my initial thesis around this category, um, I developed you know over ten years ago, and it's basically just played out. Um, It's also expanded substantially because back then I did not foresee that arbitrary programmable logic could be executed inside these secure blockchain systems. Like I assumed it was just about um, this one asset and and a kind of payment system for that asset. Um, I did not foresee things like synthetic assets um, or uh, marketplaces for trading or lending being actually embedded inside blockchains, right? So it's expanded from just money to money and finance. Um, and now I think it's expanding to like money, finance, and application logic, right? Um, so I think it's it's turned out to only be bigger and broader than I could have ever expected. Um, and, you know, I just need a really convincing reason <laughs> to change my view because um, it's, it's yeah. been nothing
1: but validated. So I'm not here to uh, <laughs> try to convince you of that. I'd, I'd be curious, though, like... One more question on that note would be on a macro scale, I very much agree with you. And like, so I, I, I also don't really sell things, but I'm curious how you think about, so like Bitcoin, ETH, never sell. Maybe you have like a couple other assets you're never selling. Do you have other things in your portfolio where you say, look, there is something that could cause me to sell. I don't want to name any names, but like insert project here, like ETH, Bitcoin, I'll never sell, but this and this, like, and eh, maybe in this cycle, I'll sell it. Or if you're taking a position on something, you just don't sell it.
0: Well, it's all, um, it's all fastest horse, right? So yeah. like, um, you know, when I say long only, I mean like long crypto. Long, well, that's and, what I'm saying.
1: I know you're long crypto, yeah. but on a micro then it's, scale... It's, thing you know, continue.
0: you have um, some level of diversification, um, you know, inside crypto, and then you want to have the fastest horse um, inside crypto. Yeah. Um, but I think one thing that you know your friend who says you want to sell the thing like they're still trapped in this idea that there is a foundational unit of account that's sort of like cosmic or something when it's there isn't there's just relative value between different assets like there is no default go back to thing it's just the value dollars the dollar is just another asset um and you know it's it's has a lot of liquidity. Um, but it's, you know, every <laughs> asset is only valuable relative to every other asset. Um, yeah. and you just want to own the fastest horse. Um, you know, if you're growing a portfolio. So to me, it's it's the whole idea to be in crypto is because I think it's the fastest horse uh category. Um, and then inside the portfolio, you know, you want to have some level of diversification to make sure you're yeah. um you're diversified a bit, and then you just want to own the fastest horse inside crypto. So, um, I know that's I didn't answer your question directly, but that's you all did
1: I actually. You did. I, this is um, this is maybe too personal of a question. We can cut this out of the podcast episode if, if if you want to. But um, do you own do you own assets outside of crypto? Do you own stocks? Do you own real estate? Do you own like do you or is it all crypto? Yeah, I I do, but the vast majority is crypto. Olaf, oh, man, this is a an awesome conversation. Any anything that um we didn't talk about that you really wanted to cover? Plans for polychain topics inside of crypto, anything we missed?
0: Um, you know, I think I think we covered a lot. Um there's there's always more to cover, but I I think mm-hmm. we covered um a lot of the big topics here.
1: All right. Thanks for coming on, man. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for having me everyone thank you so much for watching today's episode really hope you enjoyed it we wanted to take a second to just remind you about our upcoming digital asset summit in london march 18th to 20th santi and i got your back seats are limited and we hooked you up with a 20 percent off discount code it is empire 20. if you heard it earlier in the podcast there's a little competition running at blockworks to see who can drive the most number of tickets so when you register for the digital asset summit make sure you use our code empire 20. see you in london